0: And welcome on this cold and rainy Thursday evening to the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions, and uh, we're so glad that you could join us for a special evening edition of our Banner Lecture Series. Uh, I hope everybody was able to get into the building without too much fuss and bother. Uh, I realize that it's a a bit of an inconvenience, but... um, as you've probably seen, uh, just walking through what's going to be called Commonwealth Hall, uh, there's been a, just a tremendous transition um, from uh, the way that you've probably seen the building uh, for years, and uh, and what we're hoping to un- uh, reveal to the public in in May, um, and. Uh, We're very close uh, to completing the construction part of the project and we're working full swing on our exhibition program, uh, so there'll be a lot more for everybody to see uh, when you come back uh, in May. Um, uh, We're very glad to uh, welcome our Facebook uh, and YouTube uh, viewers, uh, as well as folks here in the auditorium. Um, frankly I'm glad to see people in person Uh, we've been doing a number of lectures uh, virtually um, over the past month or so um, but we're hoping that the uh, the bell curve is going down uh, and that we'll continue to be able to do these in person Um, and we've got uh, we've got quite a full suite of lectures planned for for March so before I introduce Tonight, speakers, I just want to uh, make sure that you're aware of some of the things that we've got coming up uh, next month. Um, on March 10th uh, at 6 p.m., we'll have Gail Jessup-White uh, here. Uh, she's the public relations and Com- community engagement officer for Thomas Jefferson Foundation. Uh, she'll be speaking about her book, Reclamation Sally Hemings, Thomas Jefferson, and a Descendant's Search for Her Family's Lasting Legacy. On March 15th at noon, that's our traditional uh, Banner Lecture time, uh, we'll be very pleased uh, uh, to have Charles Bryan, Dr. Charlie Bryan, with us. Uh, Many of you remember him uh, as our former president and CEO. Uh, In conversation with our current president and CEO, Jamie Boskett, Uh, talking about uh, Charlie's uh, additional book uh, on Imperfect Past, More History in a New Light. And then on March 18th at noon, uh, we'll continue uh, our partnership with the John Marshall Center for Constitutional History and Civics, and we'll welcome Akhil Reed Amar, uh, who will be talking about his recent book, uh, The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. So mark your calendars for those. Uh, there will be reminders coming out about those programs. Um, but we're very pleased to have uh, Brian Dougherty and Elise Miller with us tonight to talk about uh, an article that they wrote uh, in 2020, uh, which received the best overall article in uh, the Virginia Magazine magazine, history and biography um, for that year. Uh, The title of their article was, A New Era in Building Black Educational Activism in Goochland County, 1911 to 1932. So tonight they'll talk a little bit more about uh, their research and the article. Uh, They'll discuss community efforts to increase educational opportunities for African-Americans in Goochland County in the early 20th century and the connections between those efforts and other communities in the South. Told through a variety of archival records and oral histories, it's a story that demonstrates the power and agency of rural black communities in the Jim Crow South. Brian Dougherty is an associate professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University. He's the co-editor and author of several books on the civil rights era in Virginia including With All Deliberate Speed, Implementing Brown v. Board of Education, A Little Child Shall Lead Them, A Documentary Account for the Struggle for School Desegregation in Prince Edward County, Virginia, and Keep On Keeping On, the NAACP and the Implementation of Brown v. Board of Education in Virginia. Elise Miller is a professor of history at Valencia College in Warm Orlando, Florida and previously served as Professor of History and Chair of the Department of Humanities at John Tyler Community College. Please welcome Brian Doherty and Elise Miller.
1: Thank you so much, Adam, and thank you to the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here this evening to speak to you all about our research. I'd like to thank the leadership of the museum and the staff for all the help and assistance, uh, particularly Graham Dozier. Elise and I couldn't have written this article without funding and support from a variety of different institutions and individuals. So I'd also like to thank John Tyler Community College, uh, now becoming Bright Point Community College, the Virginia Community College System, Virginia Commonwealth University, my home institution, Virginia Humanities, the Goochland Historical Society, Second Union Rosenwald School Group, of which several members are here this evening, and it's a pleasure to see you all particularly the head, Calvin Hopkins, and finally, the people of Goochland County. So thank you all so much. This evening, we would like to talk about African-American educational activism in the pre-Brown versus Board Education era within the context of the Julius Rosenwald school building program. During the era of Reconstruction, after the Civil War, African-Americans helped create Southern public school systems, and large numbers of freedmen and freedwomen pursued educational opportunities for themselves and their children, despite substantial white resistance. After the Reconstruction era ended in the 1870s, white Southerners regained control of the region's political system and its schools. Throughout the Jim Crow era that followed, black communities fought an uphill battle for adequate educational opportunities, winning some important victories, but remaining frustrated by gross inequities in educational funding and official support. Black activists were savvy and persistent, writing letters, appearing before local school boards, fundraising, threatening litigation, and otherwise asserting the right of African-American children to have an education equal to that of white children. This struggle demonstrates the power and agency of rural black communities during the Jim Crow era. As in other communities, Coochland's African-American residents effectively secured better treatment and educational opportunities via their efforts. It also reflects the long civil rights movement, as historian Jacqueline Dowd Hall has phrased it, with roots stretching back to reconstruction. Moreover, this grassroots activism both informed and was informed by regional and national figures and organizations. Recognizing and analyzing this advocacy, we believe, expands our understanding of black activism during the Jim Crow era, educational philanthropy, and Southern educational history, as well as how this era of black activism was linked to subsequent civil rights achievements. There's growing interest among scholars in the history of African-American education during the Jim Crow era. Historian James Anderson, in his pioneering study, The Education of Blacks in the South, 1860 to 1935, underscores how black public education in this era developed within a context of oppression and white supremacy. In Virginia and elsewhere, white racism resulted in an unequal educational system for African-Americans. Local control, coupled with the disenfranchisement of black voters during and after Reconstruction, allowed authorities to effectively starve black schools of resources. In Virginia, schools were racially segregated from the outset, and officials consistently spent less money to educate African American students than white students. The burden of supporting a dual education system, one for whites and a separate system for blacks, was a unique challenge. State governments provided assistance, but many southern states, including Virginia, did not prioritize educational funding. As historian J. Douglas Smith notes, in 1928, Virginia ranked 19th among all states and first among the southern states in tangible wealth, but only 45th out of 48 states in the percentage of wealth spent on education. In this climate, white communities often attempted to secure the largest portion of the meager resources for themselves at the expense of black students. Within this context, African-American educational activism was a means of resistance to oppression. During Reconstruction, black politicians eagerly helped create public school systems throughout the South, including Virginia's in 1870. Subsequent generations of African-Americans provided donations of labor, materials, and funds to maintain and improve these schools even as they engage in activism to press authorities for equal treatment. Historians refer to these additional resources provided by the black community for the black schools, in addition to their required taxes, as a double tax. In Virginia, Jackson Davis, shown here on the screen, supervisor of rural elementary schools, recognized that this, quote, is in reality a voluntary tax and often means a sacrifice, but it speaks volumes of the desire of an increasing number of homeowning Negroes to give their children good schools," Another avenue for improving educational opportunities for African-American school children was to tap into growing Northern philanthropic support for Southern education. The Julius Rosenwald Fund was particularly important to African-Americans in Goochland County. Southern officials offered a variety of rationales for the unequal educational opportunities offered to black school children during the Jim Crow era. Many white leaders feared that a meaningful education for African-Americans would upset the racial and economic order that had taken hold in the wake of Reconstruction. Educated blacks would move into professions heretofore not open to them, and white employers might lose their source of labor. In 1901, Paul Brandon Berenger, chairman of the faculty at the University of Virginia, and later the president of Virginia Tech, argued that educational opportunities for African Americans should be limited to Sunday school training because the principal function of black Virginians was, quote, a source of cheap labor for a warm climate, unquote. Other white officials opposed providing an equal education for black children because they felt that African Americans were biologically inferior and therefore not suited for an equal education. The problems were greatest at the local level. State officials who provided a substantial financial supplement to local school funds based on the number of pupils in each locality sometimes prevented or overturned the most egregious policies enacted by local school officials, either to address larger challenges within the state's educational system, such as a shortage of teachers, or to address racial racial disparities that have become problematic. For instance, in 1927-28, State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Harris Hart, noted that one of the priorities for black education was, quote, better salaries for many Negro teachers to keep them from leaving the state, unquote. State officials declared their desire to improve instruction for black students so long as the changes did not occur to great an expense or upset racial norms. As a result, the most significant roadblock to equal educational opportunities for African Americans in Virginia at least on the elementary and secondary levels, was oftentimes local officials. Despite the separate but equal doctrine established by the United States Supreme Court in 1896 in Plessy v. Ferguson, local school officials in Virginia refused to fund black and white schools equally. In 1925, Virginia school district spent an average of $10.47 on each black public school student, while it spent... dollars 27 on each white public school student. African-American school facilities, teacher salaries, educational equipment, and course offerings suffered. Recognizing the power of education, black communities fought for equal educational opportunities for their children. Black southerners created school organizations, raised funds, invested labor and energy, sought the largest possible share of resources from local state officials, as well as philanthropic funds for their communities. The most immediate goals included adequate school facilities, longer school terms or years, high quality teachers and transportation. A related battle was for the right to a classical or liberal arts rather than an industrial education. More broadly, Black parents and communities wanted to have a stake in the local society and politics, and many believed that the education of their children was of the greatest importance. Goochland County, located 40 miles west of Richmond, mirrored much of central Virginia during this period. Like other counties in the central Piedmont region, Goochland was composed of farms interspersed with a handful of small towns. Its population of 8,863 in 1920 was 46% white, 54% African-American. Much of the black population, however, was unable to vote because of disenfranchisement laws and Virginia's 1902 state constitution. Records demonstrate that county officials, government, and school, all white provided better educational opportunities for children of white race. Guchen County officials levied taxes allocated for education to supplement state funding. In the early 1920s, the county school board received approximately $25,000 from both the state and the county. The combined state and local money, however, was not distributed equally. Although the number of black children enrolled in the county schools consistently outnumbered the number of white students, county officials spent significantly less on the instruction of black students than white students. Because the state distributed its share of funding based on the number of pupils, this meant local officials used money intended for African Americans to educate white pupils. And you can see the statistics on the screen from the 1917-18 school year as well as the average per capita cost of instruction for white and black students between 1927 and 1932. Among African Americans, oral history interviews with former students and teachers demonstrate that the emphasis on education began at home, where parents emphasized its importance to their children. Former student Dr. James H. Bowles, Sr., a graduate of Foucaire Training School, a Rosenwald school, explained a common sentiment in Goochland County. Quote, my family believed in education. Like I said, my father couldn't read or write, and he emphasized education. My mother emphasized education, and I think it was true of most of the black community. They emphasized, go to school, I hope you don't have to work like me, unquote. African-American parents fought for the best possible education for their children. In Goochland County, the struggle was primarily a local grassroots movement, but its advocates were connected to activists elsewhere in Virginia and nationwide. Outside the county, the Virginia Normal and Collegiate Institute, now Virginia State University, Virginia Union University, and Hampton Institute, now Hampton University, played important roles. School leagues, or patron leagues as they're sometimes known, local organizations that supported a specific school, were particularly significant during this era of black activism. These school leagues were made up of parents with children in the schools, and sometimes other interested community members and activists. The leagues began to develop in Guchin around 1912 and spread quickly. By early 1914, they they influenced all facets of education in the county. In addition to raising funds and serving as community forums, the leagues increased the influence and impact of black school patrons on white officials. In 1914, the division superintendent of schools, Charles William Dickinson Sr., noted that an increase in school construction that year, fueled in part by school leagues, represented, quote, a new era in building in Goochland, unquote. By 1916, there were leagues representing each of the black schools in the county, and similar organizations existed in neighboring counties. Records show that members of school leagues in Goochland County, or patrons, were instrumental in pushing the Goochland School Board to construct new buildings, improve facilities and equipment, provide teacher pay to lengthen school terms, and secure transportation. Two of the most prominent local black activists between 1911 and 1932 were Dr. Arthur Gilbert Blakey and George Walter Hayden. These men are still remembered in the community. Both were leaders on a number of different fronts in the fight for equal educational opportunities. You can see Dr. Blakey here and Mr. Hayden. They were joined in this fight by other local people who wanted to bring about change, such as John T. Cook, George Henry Dickinson, Dickerson, excuse me, and many others. These activists regularly appealed to local officials for additional funds for black education. Sometimes the school board requested that representatives from the black community appear at its meetings. But generally, these representatives went down to the courthouse, a phrase we heard often, to assert the educational rights of the black community with no invitation or arrangement with the school board. Sometimes they carried with them petitions or letters from the communities they represented and they asked the board to respect the rights of black citizens. Committees representing the colored patrons, quote unquote, also regularly appeared before the school board requesting improvements. In their appearances, league members often presented petitions on behalf of a particular league or school. In doing so, they showed their determination to participate in the political process and requested, often successfully, that the county address their concerns. In April 1924, the patrons of Second Union School wrote to Goochland County School Superintendent S.C. Cottrell regarding the budget being considered by the school board. The letter was signed by the Second Union School League and its president, T.A. Daniel. It noted that the budget manual claimed, quote, the county pays all expenditures, unquote, for the school, but that this was not the reality. The letter pointed out that the, quote, instructional salaries for teachers are not as the manual has laid out. Therefore, we are not willing to give anything for instruction until teachers are properly paid, end quote. In reference to the operations portion of the budget, the Patriots pointed out quote, We have no trucks. Our children have to walk. Chalk, erasers, other articles for schoolrooms have not been furnished by the board. We have received only two books for indigent pupils. The last diplomas were given in 1919. Therefore, we gave no expenses for operation. Unquote. The second union patrons also explained that they were not receiving any benefit from the budget item named auxiliary agencies, quote, we have no library, the board has given us not given us anything, we finished this building ourselves, unquote. Regarding the school itself, the patrons pointed out that, quote, we raised the amount we were asked for our new building, unquote. The leagues also spearheaded letter-writing campaigns to the County Board of Supervisors. An April 1924 letter from Caledonia school patrons listed items that the school needed, including, quote, a woodhouse for the fuel and maps for the geography classes. The desks of the school are in very bad shape, and we would like to have about 50 for the boys and girls of our school, unquote. In another petition, African Americans living in the vicinity of Mannequin disagreed with the school board's plan to build a one-room schoolhouse in what they considered an ill-suited location. Instead, they asked for an expansion of Mannequin-colored school, an addition of at least one room, and transportation. The petitioners asserted that, quote, they were convinced that more efficient instruction by better teachers could thus be secured. During the 1930-31 academic year, they secured funds to build the addition. On the border of Goochland and Louisa counties, G.W. Hayden fought to secure additional educational resources for the African-American children of both counties. Hayden staged his own letter-writing campaign in the early 1920s. Among others, he wrote to Dr. James H. Dillard, shown here, of the Slater Fund, Virginia Negro Rural Supervisor W.D. Gresham, State Superintendent of Instruction Harris Hart, the County and Superintendents of both Goochland and Louisa, the local Gene Supervisor and the Gene's Fund, the General A- Education Board, and Hampton Institute. And you can see these institutions and individuals listed on an envelope uh, from Mr. Hayden's records. The Jeans Fund and Slater Fund, both active in Goetzlin County, provided money for such things as school equipment, term extension, and supervising teachers. The latter was run by James Dillard, shown in the previous slide. In a 1923 letter to J.F. Abel, the assistant in rural, superf- rural education excuse me, within the Bureau of Education of the U.S. Department of the Interior, Hayden requested, quote, Comparisons of teacher salaries, length of term, amount of money spent for the counties of Virginia, unquote, as well as, quote, figures giving the comparative amount of wealth owned by the colored citizens and the white citizens, unquote. His query suggested a sophisticated agenda and predated the Virginia NAACP's teacher, salar- teacher education equalization campaign for more than a decade. Hayden also inquired with the Department of the Interior about the comparable amounts of wealth owned by blacks and whites in Goochland and Louisa counties. He did this in order to demonstrate that the African-American residents were paying significantly more than they were receiving in funding for public schools when compared to taxes paid by whites and funding received for white schools. In doing so, Hayden was implicitly arguing that blacks were not receiving their fair share of tax funds for education. When league representatives asked for a new building, as has been mentioned, the school board often required the league to come up with a portion of the money or other assets. Patrons donated lumber, both for building and heating schools. If a school needed painting, the school board might be persuaded to purchase the paint and the patrons provide the lumber excuse me, provide the painter. In most cases, the leagues were also expected to shoulder the majority of repair costs. Though they paid taxes like other county residents, African Americans were forced to shoulder an additional burden in order to elevate the quality of education for their children to the level of education provided to the county's white children. Fundraising for school construction and repairs was a major function of the leagues. They did so via rallies, dinners, and church services. In fact, in the 29 counties included in the 1914 Annual Report of the Virginia Supervisor of Elementary Rural Schools, local black communities raised a combined nearly $31,000 for new buildings, term extensions, and school improvements. The funds raised by the school improvement leagues made up the significant majority of funds spent on any aspect of African American education. In this context, national philanthropic funds that supported black education were significant to the opportunities available to African Americans. The Julius Rosenwald Fund focused on black education in the South, as did the Anna Jean's Fund, the John Slater Fund, and the General Education Board. African-Americans throughout the region were familiar with these organizations and successfully sought funding to supplement their private contributions to build schoolhouses, lengthen school terms, increase teacher salaries, and provide transportation to black students. African-Americans leveraged the resources of the black community to secure funds and incentivized white school boards to appropriate money as well.
2: So The Julius Rosenwald uh, Fund school building program was in many ways the brainchild of this man, Booker T. Washington. As early as 1904, Washington wrote to Dr. Samuel Green um, about the need and the importance of African Americans benefiting from the Peabody Fund. The Peabody Fund provided money largely in the form of challenge or matching grants for school building, teacher education, and industrial education. The Peabody Fund supported both white and black education, but Washington faced a challenge. He noted it by saying, quote, I mentioned that colored race because in many cases I find that people are likely to overlook their welfare in a board where their race is not directly represented, unquote. Washington argued that building and improving black schoolhouses would transform the lives and opportunities of African Americans, and he made it his mission and that of the Tuskegee Institute to bring new and better schools to southern blacks, starting in Alabama. In 1911, Booker T. Washington met Julius Rosenwald, president of Sears, Roebuck, and Company, And the following year, he convinced Rosenwald to give money to be distributed by Washington to assist the development of rural black schools in Alabama, an outgrowth of an earlier Tuskegee Institute program. Out of this came the Rosenwald School Building Program, which constructed more than 5,000 black schools in 15 southern states between 1917 and 1932, including 367 schools in Virginia, and 10 in Goochland County. The Rosenwald School Building Program and other northern educational philanthropic organizations were motivated by a combination of factors. In part, they feared the growing tide of southern blacks moving north during the first Great Migration, believing that lower wage workers in the north might destabilize the business-employee relationship and a large black population might negatively affect race relations. Support for Southern black education might stem the growing tide of black migrants. At the same time, many philanthropists were also motivated by progressivism, a turn of the century strain of thinking that advocated improving the conditions of society, especially for the poor. Educational philanthropists supported better school transportation, longer school terms, and higher teacher salaries as a means of lifting up those on the lower levels of American society, especially African Americans. However, Northern white philanthropists generally supported improvements to Southern education, including that of African Americans, while catering to the views of Southern whites. For example, they did not challenge the segregated nature of Southern education. In his examination of Rosenwald school building in North Carolina, historian James Laloides argues that the building campaign helped create and promote a kind of, quote, updated paternalism, unquote, aimed at, quote, moderating conflict, unquote, wherein, quote, African Americans could aspire to, quote, unquote, better things in life within the safe confines of a patron-client relationship, unquote. Thus, new educational resources were offered within the confines of Jim Crow and the racial discourses prevalent throughout the Western world in the early 20th century. Nonetheless, for several decades in the early 1900s, Northern philanthropic funding provided crucial support for black education in the South, including Goochland County. Between 1917 and 1932, the Julius Rosenwald Fund helped construct 367 schools, three teachers' homes, and 11 school shops in Virginia. The schools had a student capacity of 42,840, and employed nearly 1,000 teachers. The total cost of the new buildings, grounds, and equipment in Virginia was nearly $2 million. Of this cost, African Americans contributed contributed about 22%. White contributions totaled about 1%. The Rosenwald Fund contributed about 15%. And state and local contributions um, amounted to about 62%, primarily from tax revenue. In the 15 states where the school building program operated, African Americans collectively contributed 17% of the funds. The Rosenwald Fund contributed about 15% of the funds. Private white contributions totaled about 4% of the funds. And public funds made up the remaining 64% of the funds. This is um, another of the rosenwald schools in goochland county importantly rosenwald grant funds encourage states and local school boards to expend money that they would not ordinarily have spent on black schools for its contribution the rosenwald fund required matching funds from both public and private sources the fund also required that each school building and the land it was built on two acres minimum was the requirement, to be deeded to the local public school system. In Goochland, the school board often factored in Rosenwald Fund Aid when it was approached for school building funds, in part because the county was poor, rural, and had one of the lowest tax assessments in the state. The county school board, which regularly ran a deficit and was sometimes forced to to end the school year early, could not provide adequately funded, segregated school systems on its own. Rosenwald Funds helped fill the gap. In Goochland County, 10 schools for African Americans were constructed with assistance from the Rosenwald Fund, and this is one that you see on the screen. Six of these were built as two teacher schools, three were built as one teacher schools, and Fawquire Training School was a five teacher school. Together, these schools educated generations of black residents. Some of these uh, residents of Goochland County educated in these schools are here today. The total cost of the schools was $28,456. The African-American community contributed about 21% of those funds. Private contributions from white residents of the county totaled about 1%. The Rosenwald Fund contributed about 17%, and state and local government contributed 61%. Now, even when schools were available, a lack of transportation prevented some black students from completing their education. Dr. James H. Bull Sr., and there was you, you uh, saw an image of him in an earlier slide, he attended Cal- Caledonia School in 1928, After completing the seventh grade, he wanted to attend Foquire Training School. Foquire was the only high school for African-Americans in the county, and they had lobbied hard for its construction in the early 1920s. However, there was no transportation available, and so James Bowles was forced to repeat the seventh grade at Caledonia School. Fortunately, he was mentored by his neighbor, Dr. A.G. Blakey. Together, with other community activists, including GW Hayden and John T. Cook. Blakey pressed the school board for transportation to to Farquhar Training School, excuse me. Cook's daughter, Ruth Cook Johnson, remembers that, quote, if anybody wanted to go to the high school, they would have to walk or either get a ride because there was only one bus and that bus was segregated. The black children could not ride that. So my father worked on that and went down and he fussed and went on for several years until they also started a bus for the black children, unquote. In April 1929, however, the school board told Hayden it could no longer continue bus service to Focquire because of a lack of funds. In response, Hayden secured petitions from members of the black school leagues in Goochland County, quote, asking for a raise of taxes so there might be enough money for transportation, unquote. In addition, Hayden appeared before the school board to press for transportation to Fauquier so many times that the minutes are peppered with phrases like, again, in reference to his requests. He was told the board could not act on his requests because it lacked the funds. At the October 1929 meeting, Hayden asked the board to contribute toward transportation to Fauquier in light of the fact that if the board contributed funds, they would be able to take advantage of Rosenwald transportation funds. In addition, several unnamed white residents of the county had contributed money to transport black students to FACWIRE. Finally, the school board passed a resolution stating, quote, the school board will enter into the transportation proposition only as a partner to handle the funds, but still not give any financial support to same, unquote. Thus, in 1929, the quote, colored patrons, unquote, spent $335 on a truck for black school children. While that same year, the school system paid more than $7,220 to operate 16 school trucks for white children. It's evident that Blakey, Hayden, and other activists argued that they were legally entitled to such funds, and they were determined to hold the school board to that. In March 1931, Hayden cautioned the school board that the black community was being treated unfairly and that it was unacceptable. Asking again for a black school bus to be included in the following year's budget, Hayden invoked a prominent member of the white community. Hayden stated that Dr. Lee, the county treasurer, said that the Negroes were not being treated fairly. Hayden said, quote, Um, that the Negroes were not being treated fairly and that the white people didn't put up any money for their buses and the Negroes did, unquote. The black community also contacted the Commonwealth's attorney, P.L. Smith, and other lawyers to secure their rights. Smith regularly appeared at school board hearings when black leaders asked for educational improvements. These grassroots activists such as Blakey, Hayden, and Cook argued that they were entitled to educational opportunities equal to those white children were receiving and that they were not receiving them the school leagues the Julius Rosenwald fund and other national philanthropic funds however were committed to extending the length of the school year for African-American students during the 1929 to 1930 school year the Goochland school board grew increasingly concerned about its financial situation The Great Depression, coupled with the low tax levies assessed by the county, took their toll on the school board's coffers. Accordingly, the board requested that the county superintendent ask the state superintendent of public instruction, Harris Hart, for permission to run the white schools in the county for eight months and the black schools only six months during the 1929 to 1930 school year. Superintendent Hart denied the request. Perhaps he knew that in the late 1920s, the average length of the school year in Goochland County was 180 days for white schools and 140 days for black schools. At the same time, black fundraising and funds from philanthropies helped to compensate for declining local support. So by the 1932 to 1933 school term, there was parity in the length of term for white and black schools in Goochland County. And this achievement was made possible by the actions of the local African-American community and by state education officials' unwillingness to side with Goochland County officials. Another challenge facing black schools in Goochland County was the disparity in teacher pay. During the Great Depression, when the state's already low school coffers became even more depleted, teacher salaries saw drastic swings, In general, the school board attempted to mitigate the decline in white teacher salaries at the expense of black teacher salaries. By 1932 to 33, black teachers made 30% less than white teachers in Goochland County. The continuing inequities in teacher pay, which were noted by instructors in Goochland, soon set the stage for a legal assault on Virginia's segregated pay scales by the Virginia State Conference of the NAACP. The activism that occurred in Goochland County was part of a larger movement for educational equality then taking place throughout Virginia and the South. The Julius Rosenwald Fund was adept at maximizing the reach and impact of its funds by adding conditions to the funds it dispersed. For instance, in 1929-30, to 30, Transportation money provided by the Julius Rosenwald Fund included a funding schedule to incentivize counties to fund school bus operation. Quote, the fund would provide $1 for each dollar provided by local sources for the first year, $1 for each $2 provided in the second year, $1 for each $3 provided in the third year, with the understanding that the county will agree to continue the operation of the service after the three-year period. Unquote. the fund applied a similar scheme to the purchase of buses mandating that for a school to be eligible for transportation aid it must have a term of at least six months quote eight months being preferred unquote, and that all teachers at schools receiving transportation aid be paid a salary of at least fifty dollars The Rosenwald Fund also incentivized school boards to improve the quality of black education by requiring that newly constructed school buildings and the surrounding land be deeded to the local school board. As a result, school boards gained wealth in the form of property and improvements on property. In a county like Goochland, which periodically ran a school deficit, this was fortuitous. For example, in 1923, the total assets of the Goochland County school system were valued at just over $66,000. By 1929, that number had increased to over $112,000. In the six years between 1923 and 1929, the Goochland school system built or remodeled seven Rosenwald schools. Throughout the South between 1920 and 1930, the building of Rosenwald schools made up 78% of the overall increase in school property for African-American students. The overall value of public school property in Virginia in 1920 was over $22 million. Over $20 million of that was for whites and over 2.5 million of that was for blacks. By 1930, the overall value in Virginia of school property was over $47 million Over $42 million of that school property was for whites and over $5 million of that school property was for blacks this represented an 87% increase in school property values for blacks and a 111% increase in school property value for whites. The increase in public money spent on school property for African-Americans between 1920 and 1930 was over 2.3 million dollars. And over 1.8 million dollars of that, or 78% of it, was directed toward the construction of Rosenwald schools. Overall, across the 15 states in which the Rosenwald school building program was active, Public school property values for black schools increased on average 174% between 1920 and 1930. Black educational activism in Goochland County was effective at improving the community as well as increasing educational access and opportunity for African-Americans within a discriminatory system. School terms increased in length. Building capacity and quality increased. Teacher salaries increased, and Fawquire Training School was constructed and subsequently accredited as a high school. All these gains came about despite institutional discrimination, the overall poverty of Coochlin County, and the Great Depression. These changes also translated into increased opportunity and pride in education for later generations. African-American educational activism in Goochland County yielded results far beyond improved school structures, better teacher pay, bus service, and longer school terms. Educational access increased. And though education remained separate and vastly unequal, increased parity was reached between black and white educational opportunities. The benefits were dramatic. Between 1910 and 1930, the number of African Americans over the age of 10 who were illiterate in Goochland County decreased from 1,368 to 573. The Rosenwald School Building Program did not challenge the status quo of segregation in the South, nor did it require states or localities to equalize funds spent on black and white schools. In fact, as we've seen, the very existence and need for the Rosenwald School Building Program is testament to the devastating effects of segregation and racism on education in the South, as well as of the double tax required of African-American communities desiring access to improved educational opportunities for their children. Nonetheless, the Rosenwald School Building Program significantly increased the availability and quality of educational facilities available to black school children throughout the South. And records have shown that Rosenwald schools increased attendance rates, as well as the number of school years completed. In doing so, they also helped strengthen the tradition of grassroots educational activism within African American communities. Black parents and communities sought a stake in society and politics, and they were willing to sacrifice financially and in other ways to participate. Such activism foreshadowed the legal effort for school equalization sponsored largely by the NAACP in the 1930s and 1940s, as well as the extended campaign to bring about school desegregation thereafter. In the 1930s, the threat of initiating legal action to compel school equalization in Goochland County led to a settlement with the school board. In the late 1940s, the Goochland County branch of the NAACP, which included activists discussed above as well as their descendants, openly challenged segregation and voter disenfranchisement. Discussing a county about two hours east of Goochland, author Phyllis McClure noted, quote, the effort of black communities to secure a Rosenwald school was an important precursor to the campaign for equal educational opportunities that came in the modern civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s, unquote. The fight for better schools in Goochland County showcases the commitment and organization of local black communities that were determined to secure educational opportunities for the children within their communities. The activism and fundraising activity by local blacks highlights the strong and vibrant tradition of self-help within the African American community and underscores the importance of educational activism as a means of acquiring cultural capital during the early 20th century. Soon thereafter, increased black activism would set the stage for the coming civil rights era. Today, groups of former students and interested community members are working to save the stories and structures associated with this history. We were lucky to have been welcomed into the Second Union Rosenwald School Group, which is a group of former students and interested residents of Goochland County and surrounding counties. And this organization has preserved Second Union Rosenwald School and converted it into a local museum. The group also provides a range of educational opportunities for residents of Goochland County through scholarships to Goochland High School Seniors, partnering with local college and university classes, offering tours of the museum, among many other things. If you're interested in visiting the school museum, you can find more information at their website, um, which is on this side, on this slide, Second Union. RosenwaldSchool.org.
1: We've also worked with Second Union School Group and Virginia Commonwealth University to record and make accessible the stories of students of these former schools in the form of oral history interviews. And so these are available on the website here on the screen. We'd like to thank VCU Libraries, VCU Special Collections, and the VCU History Department for their support in this endeavor. But on the website, you can see filmed oral history interviews, photographs, documentation related to the article that we've just presented, as well as the story behind it. So thank you all so much. We'll be happy to take any questions that you might have. And I believe that there are some microphones that will circulate the audience. If you do have a question, you just raise your hand and they'll bring a microphone to you.
3: Your study, your research into this particular school, district, and county?
2: Thank you. That's a good question. Um, It was a um, fortuitous uh, set of events. I was a uh, professor at John Tyler Community College, and I was putting together the slate of events for Black History Month. And I happened to have Brian come speak at one of the events. So we got to know each other and started talking about ways to collaborate. And I also um, had someone come from the Department of Historic Resources in Virginia. And they talked about Rosenwald schools. So we started talking about how that was interesting. We were curious, learning more. And um, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Ray Drinkwater, at John Tyler Community College um, lived in Goochland County and um, invited us to come meet with the folks from Second Union. And so we met with them, and things just took off from there. They were so gracious in, in welcoming us and sharing their stories because, as we said, this article would never have happened. The oral history interviews, obviously, would not have happened without the people of Goochland County trusting us with their stories.
1: And and I'll just add that a number of uh, communities that uh, were sponsors of Rosenwald schools or that had Rosenwald schools built within the county or within the school district have been uh, restoring these schools in recent years. It's been a bit of a movement around the state of Virginia, a difficult challenge to be sure, but an important one for historical preservation purposes, as well as to tell the stories of the schools and the importance of them. And that was the case at Second Union School, um, which has been central to our work and, and our story. Um, they were in the midst of uh, renovations and converting the school into a museum. And uh, as part of their work, um, you know, we offered to conduct some oral history interviews to offer a visual element to the museum and to uncover any stories that we could, that we thought might be of help to their effort. And um, so it was, a, it was a true partnership from the very beginning.
3: First, I'd like to say thank you very much for the presentation. Uh, it was very informative. And I don't have a question, I just have a comment. December 1st, 1987, I was appointed as the principal of Goochland Elementary School. And I knew absolutely nothing about Goochland. I knew that I wanted to be a school administrator. The only thing that I heard about Goochland was that Goochland was the most racist place to work. And you know, and I didn't know anything about the Rosenwald or anything of that nature. But I must say that in the 11 years where I was principal of the elementary school and then principal of the middle school, that I just realized that I was also an activist for all children, not just for black children, but for all children in the
1: county. Thank you so much.
2: Um, so, so I know that there's a number of organizations, including Preservation Virginia, um, who have been and the Department of Historic Resources, who have been working on taking an inventory. Um, I am not sure if that inventory is complete yet. Um, I do know that the percentage of schools in Virginia um, was trending that that were still standing was trending higher than in many other states, um, which could be attributed to a number of reasons, perhaps one of which is Virginia has more recognition in general of the importance of historic structures. but you know there there's a lot of these schools um, were the land for the schools had been deeded by churches. Um, and that was the case with second Union. And so that particular school, um, had been used by the church then, um, I believe for Sunday school, I believe also as kind of a storage um, catch-all place for a while, um, and and it was still standing in that capacity. We had the um, privilege of going on a tour of the Rosenwald and other non-Rosenwald black schools in the county um, some number of years ago, and some of you were on that tour with me. And we got to view all of these schools that were still standing, and for some of them, like Chapel Hill School was a school in Goochland County that was no longer standing, though interestingly, its woodshed was still standing, um, which was also built to Rosenwald' specifications. Um, other schools like First Union and Westview had been, and mannequin, had been transformed into homes. And so they'd been renovated. So those were very interesting to see the different architectural renovations and and what was still remaining of the original um, structural integrity of the school. So that's how some of them survived. We saw one in particular black school in the county that was not a Rosenwald school, that um, we were very glad we were wearing long pants and long sleeves that day because it was in the middle of the woods um, and you, if you didn't know it was there, you wouldn't know it was there. Um, it was all overgrown around it. So they're in varying states. Um, the ones that are in the best condition tend to be ones that um, were um, preserved for different functions by churches, were transformed into homes. Um, I've toured some structures in other counties that were ruins, um, some rubble on the ground. Um, So they're all in in varying states.
1: And I I think the only thing that I would add to that would be that when school desegregation occurred in Virginia after 1954 and when it really became a reality in the late 1960s and the 1970s, Uh, many of the former African-American schools were closed as a part of that process. Um, Many of the communities uh, felt that the white schools should be preserved and that integration typically occurred from the African-American community enrolling into those uh, formerly all-white schools. And so many of these uh, Rosenwald schools' community treasures were closed at that time between the 1950s and the 1960s. And um, that, of course, has been um, a part of the story of trying to have them preserved and maintained and so forth. Um, When they were closed at that time, if there wasn't a community support or another need for the school building, it was um, less likely to have been uh, preserved at that point. Well, if there's no other questions, we'd like to really thank you all for coming, for listening to this story, for your interest and for your support. Elise and I will be milling about here at the front of the room. We'll be happy to take any additional questions that you might have. And uh, again, we thank the Virginia Museum of History and Culture for hosting this event. Thank you all so much.